I really wanted to skip Zelda 2. My reasoning was something along the lines of, I just don't think it contributes anything to the series, or it's really annoying. These were blanket statements. And therefore, out of morbid curiosity, I had to go back to it to find a real reason. Immediately repressed memories came flooding back to me. But my stance on the game's place in the series has shifted dramatically. Perhaps it's the buried potential or its surprising legacy, but the game has since become way more interesting to me. It's no secret that Zelda 2 is a different game from its predecessor. And different isn't exactly synonymous with good, is it? It also didn't feature many of the first game's creators in prominent roles. Takashi Tezuka returned to write the game's plot and scenarios, and Shigeru Miyamoto served as a producer, but aside from that, the team was full of new people. Some of them were new to shipping video games as a whole, including Tadashi Sugiyama. He had previously only worked in graphic and character design when Nintendo tasked him with creating a sequel to one of their new flagship titles in under a year. With this in mind, you'd think they would have taken the Lost Levels route and just created a harder iteration of the first game, reconstructing the overworld and creating more challenging dungeons. But as we know, Zelda 2 barely resembles its predecessor at a glance, and it's hard to imagine them coming up with a game so drastically different in a year. This development history definitely raises some red flags, and on top of that, Zelda 2's reception hasn't exactly been glowing over the years. There was even an AVGN episode on the game, and I'm pretty sure James himself is a fan of every game in the Zelda series, CDI notwithstanding. All of these factors eventually made me cave, and I played through the game again just as a refresher. Just so I could have more context for my Link to the Past video, right? I didn't really need to make a video on this game, did I? Well, you probably have an inkling of what the answer is. But I definitely have to be careful here. I know people tend to trash this game a lot, but I'm aware that several people legitimately love Zelda 2. Including Ben Schwartz of Parks and Recreation. <laughs> I, I beat out uh, Zelda 2 again. I love the second Zelda. I love yeah. it too. People shit on it all the time. I love it. This is just one example of the game's lasting effect. The breadth of the reactions to Zelda 2 was enough to convince me not just to revisit it like I mentioned earlier, but also to give it the fair analysis I think it deserves. Even fans of the game have acknowledged its flaws. It's not just simply black and white. This house uh -huh. that's just hidden randomly in the forest, uh -huh. like, you just have to know that it's here. And he is critical to complete the game. If there's somebody in the game that sort of hints that it's there, then that's fine. But they don't really. Like, really? they might say Bagu is in the forest, but like, what the fuck would that mean, yeah. you know? So they're basically asking you to like comb every inch of the world. Let's examine this strange footnote in the Zelda series' history and see just why it left a great divide between fans. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link. From the word go, nothing seems to be awry with Zelda 2. Yes, it is a side-scrolling action game with RPG elements, but aside from that, the formula established with Zelda 1 is more or less intact. Finding dungeons in the overworld and expanding your arsenal so you can beat the game. Perhaps the most notable difference is the streamlining of your progression in the overworld. You won't be able to go explore the whole world like you could in the first game, which makes sense considering the RPG-based progression Zelda 2 is attempting to implement. This time you'll need to gather information and spells, which will contextualize your path and allow you to reach the dungeon. The dungeon you're heading for will contain the item that is crucial in reaching the next dungeon, or you'll find it along the path to the next dungeon anyway. And as you make your way towards that dungeon, you can gather more upgrades and bonuses, as long as you can discover them. This linear approach is definitely a deviation from the first game's philosophy, but then again, so is everything else. And it would serve as a basis for future overworld progression. Not structurally, though. 
as the game's overworld isn't nearly as freeform as some of the Zelda games you might be picturing. While a game like Link to the Past was able to retain the open-ended overworld design of the first game, Zelda 2 asks you to put the pieces together in a self-contained area before you proceed. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, though. This means solving the world piece by piece, gathering information from the townsfolk and using that information to find crucial items in the overworld. This is at its strongest in the first area of the game. Everything is presented without the risk of overwhelming the player. Sure, it might be a little weird getting used to the battle system when you get caught in an overworld fight, but there's two towns and a few caves, two of them being impossible to clear without a source of light. One of these caves, however, is mostly clear of hazards. The indication that something isn't right comes when you pay attention to the floor. There's a louder crawling across and you need to pay attention to its feet to avoid damage. This one moment carries with it the spirit of the first game, putting pieces of a puzzle together in order to progress, while also assessing the situation and acting accordingly in the moment. Sure enough, in the dungeon up ahead you find a candle to light up the cave. This also makes it possible to progress through the cave to the west, as that one has way more enemies that are impossible to avoid in complete darkness. It also allows you to grab both a magic upgrade and a trophy that'll unlock a required spell in the town west of you. This opening section is unquestionably an admirable part of the game that makes finding the item in the dungeon exciting, and also carves a path for you to progress through. It feels like a silent tutorial on resourcefulness, and despite being relatively confined, it still expands upon the puzzle box philosophy of the first game, while streamlining it for new players. However, there is a reason I've singled it out. It's because it's one of the only times the overworld has any semblance of design cohesion or clarity. If you recall, certain elements in the original Zelda had this problem. If you didn't have the manual letting you know that you could bomb walls and burn bushes, you'd have to rely on word of mouth. Once you have that knowledge, some of the game's secrets are still pretty cryptic. While stuff like blowing a hole in Death Mountain is hinted at in-game, and the bush covering up Dungeon 8 is placed in a suggestive manner, other secrets aren't so clever. Certain heart containers and expensive items at a discounted price are hidden behind bombable walls that are indistinguishable from other walls. I mean, walls don't have any indication of being bombable in the first place, but at least there were some contextual clues in the game via the wise old people or the surrounding environment. These are straight up hidden in plain sight. I know Zelda 1 was about sharing the secrets you find with your friends, so that you can help them progress through the game. But who's going to be the first person to find out that you can bomb that specific wall in that one square on the overworld? It's not entirely consistent, is it? Zelda 2 showed some promise in that regard. Conquering that first dungeon and moving on through the next cave using the intel you've gathered is satisfying. But those intelligently crafted puzzles are substituted with unnecessarily cryptic elements. The instruction manual alleviates some of these issues at the very least. I don't know how I was able to survive without it, but it tells you about the various spells you can acquire, it gives you combat tips, it encourages you to level up before taking on particularly challenging areas. Without laying out the solutions, it gives you a good amount of information. But what's left outside of the instruction manual? <sighs> Let's go down the list. Rather than requiring ingenuity or resourcefulness from the player, most of the significant cornerstones in this game require desperate guessing. It's just like the frustration that those hidden walls create in Zelda 1, except they're mandatory and plentiful here. For example, let's start with Bagu. This guy has a note that you need to show to the guard in the water town of Saria. This will grant you access to Death Mountain. Unfortunately, your only hint towards Bagu's location is a sleeping choo-choo in the aforementioned water town. You wake him up by repeatedly talking to him, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that this isn't an obvious thing to figure out in the first place, as it's most likely that the average player would disregard the Choo-Choo's existence after talking to it once, and seeing it snore. Anyway, he tells you his master is in the woods north of the nearby river. 
but what he actually means is there's a specific bush you need to pinpoint in order to find him. If obtaining the general knowledge of his approximate location wasn't so awkward, finding that one square in the forest would have been genuinely rewarding. But that wasn't the case here. What's even more unfortunate is that this kind of design is persistent throughout. While it is hinted at that a new spell can be found in each town, the way you go about retrieving them isn't always clear. The example I used in the first portion of the game is great, however. You don't even need the clue to find the trophy, as your first instinct after you find the candle is to light up any nearby cave. Then, as you're talking to villagers, one of them will thank you for finding the trophy. This is mwah, mwah, it's perfect. But the game doesn't do any more of this. In fact, some instances are downright abysmal. The life spell is the most blatant example of this kind of design. One of the townsfolk in Saria hints at a lost mirror. Your only clue as to where it could be is an empty house by the river. What you're supposed to do here is crouch down by the table and press B and you'll retrieve the mirror. I don't understand how someone is supposed to figure that out, and you do this in order to gain such a crucial spell. If I didn't have the ability to restore my life with a spell, I probably would have given up. The way you retrieve this mirror is inexcusable. I can't defend it by saying secrets are meant to be secret or something like that. This is just straight up, purely defined bullshit. And it doesn't end there. In the hidden town of Kasuto, you're told that there's a secret at the edge of town, although the game doesn't tell you how to interact with it. There's a spell in the game that's just called Spell. I'm dead serious. It'll change the form of enemies you encounter, but if you use it here in Kasuto at the edge of town, a secret temple appears. I remember watching the AVGN episode on Zelda 2 and being completely dumbfounded. But he also said something that I think makes a lot of sense. How are you supposed to know all that unless you read Nintendo Power? The townspeople don't help that much, they might as well just say, Get the power, Nintendo Power. Yeah, it's classic, hidden, cryptic Nintendo horseshit. It's a commentary on the nature of cryptic games of this era, but it's also fueled this stupid theory of mine that Nintendo of America and Nintendo EAD were in cahoots at the time, all in an attempt to sell more copies of Nintendo Power so kids wouldn't be completely lost. Isn't capitalism a wondrous thing? Obviously this theory has no ground, but if this is the only way that you could have possibly figured out the solution, it gets me a little suspicious, and it's the only way I can really justify why this would be in the game. I mean, I could go on. Zelda 2 exemplifies what not to do when designing secrets in a video game. Finding that one specific grave that leads to a dungeon, walking through a wall like James showed in his AVGN episode, using a flute to open Dungeon 6 with no indication of what it actually does, the lack of clarity on what you require before you can learn spells like Thunder and... Spell? It just saddens me. If they were to design challenges around these things, and set up better clues that lead you towards a solution, I wouldn't be complaining nearly as much. Solving these things should feel rewarding, and not like I'm trying to find a needle in a haystack. Zelda 2's overworld was almost enough for me to give up on it completely. But, there are things about it that kept me going. Most notably the combat system. It's not perfect, but it does give the game a proper sense of rewarding progression that would otherwise be missing. The first game did this with items, sword and armor upgrades, and heart containers. You discover them in dungeons and in the overworld, giving exploration purpose. Although you can still explore for items as well as health and magic containers in Zelda 2, all of the magic containers are required to finish the game, so it feels more like you're being forced to explore, rather than being organically introduced to the world. On the flip side, the game's primary sense of progression comes from its level-up system. Each enemy will drop a different number of experience points when you kill them, and each time you gain a level, you can choose between upgrading life, magic, and attack. Life and magic upgrades work in tandem with the health and magic containers. Upgrading your life reduces the damage you take, and upgrading magic makes spells less costly. 
So you're upgrading your meter while also keeping your levels high. And on top of that, you can upgrade your attack to deal more damage and turn Link into a walking tank. And on top of that, every time you clear a dungeon you gain a free level. It's a pretty enticing way of creating a non-linear method of increasing your strength, regardless of whether or not it belongs in a Zelda game. Then again, Zelda would go on to become a particularly malleable series. If a mechanic works, then I'm fine with it. In the beginning, the enemies are all about pattern memorization. For example, once you get close enough to these guys and deflect their boomerangs, you can put them up against a wall and just wail on them. The guys that lob shit over your head are about finding an opening to approach through. Then you need to time your sword swings with his movements. There are plenty of examples of this kind of design throughout the game, and it's when combat is at its best. It's challenging but rewarding when you master an enemy's tactics. A lot of the bosses follow this rule too. The boss with multiple floating heads is all about dodging the orb so you can land blows without taking damage. Thunderbird is about placing yourself where you need to be ahead of time. Other enemies are about finding a rhythm in your attacks, timing them in perfect succession. Now this can either be a blessing or a curse. For example, you could find a pattern in the Darknut's shield, but it's inconsistent. Once I get into a pattern of jumping and slashing him in the head, he'll go down without a problem at all. It takes some practice to master this, but it feels amazing taking the Darknut down this way. Usually the bosses benefit from this mentality the most. Similarly to the Darknut, the Ball and Chain boss is about finding a rhythm as you clear his openings. Enemies like this are great. Now the curse part comes from finding that rhythm. While some enemies are all about that, finding that rhythm can be inaccessible, and that's where I think people get hung up on this game's combat. Unfortunately, their hatred isn't unjustified. These enemies are the exception, not the rule. A lot of the enemies in Zelda 2 have ridiculous patterns and erratic movements. There's a blue variant of Dark Nuts that throw daggers. They don't have a pattern, they just relentlessly throw daggers at you. You can't jump on top of him and down thrust like a cheese master. You have to somehow do what you did before with an enemy that you can barely get close to. It's because of this that I dreaded the third dungeon's boss upon replaying this game. It's a dagger throwing dark nut that can take more hits. These axe wielding fellas are first encountered in Death Mountain, and the only way I've been able to deal damage to him without wasting magic is by walking away from him, then jumping forward and hitting him in the head. Wash, rinse, repeat. I could also exploit the fact that he can't jump by climbing up on a ledge and stabbing him in the head repeatedly. That's the name of the game here, finding ways to cheese the enemies that bother you the most. Dark Link is an awesome fight and concept, you have to deal with the moves you've been using against other enemies throughout the entire game, but damn is it hard. I bring this fight up because most people cheese the fight by crouching in the bottom left corner of the screen and slashing at him like a coward. Honestly, if it means avoiding a game over, I'm fine with that. I'm gonna be honest, if you really want to experience this boss, I don't think there's any shame in using save states. It's a lot of fun finding openings in the same attacks that you've been using. People didn't have this luxury 30 years ago, so I'm not going to excuse its difficulty, but at least we can attempt to get better at fighting the boss this way. But you know what? It's times like these, I wish all enemies had difficult to master patterns rather than forcing the combat to turn into a rhythm game. It would make combat challenging, rewarding, and above all else, fair. So it's definitely mixed. And yet, despite my praise for the challenging combat in certain parts of the game, it's all brought down by two fatal flaws. The first being that fucking lives counter. Yeah, it's finally time to light a fire under this game's ass. Zelda 2 is the only Zelda game to feature a lives counter, and it in no way benefits the game. You have three lives, and when you die, you go back to Zelda's resting place, losing the experience you've gained towards your next level. Not only is this unforgiving, it also makes persevering through what is already a difficult game almost impossible for some people. The only conclusion I could draw from its implementation is that the developers of this game were more experienced with developing games that belong in an arcade. 
Games that were all about getting a high score and not completing a grand quest. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of Zelda 2's development team is comprised of new blood, and most of them had never worked on something like this before. Now, I could understand a more forgiving live system here. Give the player five lives, and when they lose all of them, they respawn at the beginning of the dungeon, without losing their experience. This would also cut out the need for grinding. Since you're expected to die a lot, you'd gain more levels organically. Grinding is something necessary for portions of Zelda 2, most notably Death Mountain. Since this place is a giant maze with caves that connect confusingly to one another, in order to get through without losing all of your lives and having to go back to the beginning, you'll need to level up yourself in a loop of pure monotony. By the way, you risk dying and losing all that progress towards your next level every time you grind. But even when you have the levels to approach Death Mountain, you need to hope to god you can kill everything that stands in your way without losing all your lives, and hope you can clear the dungeon on top of that. Otherwise, it's back to square one for you. Forcing you to backtrack back over to the dungeon through Death Mountain, only for the risk of dying again to persist. This is beyond stupid. <laughs> there is nothing about this that encourages improvement or learning through challenge. It's an unjustified, poorly implemented design choice. You can find 1-ups in the overworld, but they don't permanently extend your lives like a heart container, for example. Once you get a game over, the 1-up you collected will not respawn. So what's the point? I don't know. I don't really think it has a point. Much like there isn't a point in including a live system in this game. The other thing that destroys any of Zelda 2's positive momentum is the magic meter. Because combat can become intense very quickly, you'll find yourself utilizing the attack spells and the life restoration spell a fair bit. There's just one problem. When you run out of magic, you're basically fucked. You have to hope that an enemy will drop a container for you, otherwise you'll have to kill yourself to refill your meter. Thus, losing a life and putting your risk of restarting at the very beginning much higher. Since there are parts in dungeons that require you use the jump or fairy spell for example, expect jumping in a pit to become a common occurrence when attempting to clear dungeons. If you thought the magic meter was annoying in Zelda games after this, you haven't seen the horrors that the magic meter in Zelda 2 creates. It completely destroys the pacing of the game when you have to suddenly stop and hunt for magic containers to have another chance of progression. It's funny though, because combat basically carries the dungeons in this game. Much like Zelda 1, the game tests you in dungeons with enemies harder than anything you would have faced in the overworld up to that point. But what cripples Zelda 2's dungeons in addition to that is the limited navigation and the lack of puzzle solving. Here you move from left to right, and you take elevators to go to the floors above and below you. This might sound innovative, but the maps boil down to being wide, corridor-esque versions of dungeons from Zelda 1. When moving through one of the floors, the key to open the locked door will either be on your left or your right. If you meet the locked door before you find the key, you've essentially wasted your time, and since there's a good chance you'll never revisit that room, the information there is useless. I can't think of an instance in a dungeon from Zelda 2 where rooms intersected with one another for exploration-based puzzles like in the first game. It's because of the layout of dungeons this time around. They're more like gauntlets now, expansive versions of caves you'd find in the overworld. There are a few instances of puzzle solving in dungeons, but they're not well thought out. Most of them are obvious uses of the jump and fairy spells. The only challenging instance I can think of is the bullshit part in that one dungeon where you have to walk through a dead-end wall, which James showed in his video. I suppose dungeons serve their purpose when pitting you against enemies, but with a combat system so shaky and the risk of restarting all the way back at square one being there, I find it incredibly hard to like them overall. They're vastly inferior to the first game's dungeons, which managed to balance exploration and combat. Here it's just combat, using the corresponding spell, and fighting a boss. All of this equates to the complaint that Zelda 2 doesn't feel like a true sequel to Zelda 1. 
Everything that the first game established has either been ignored or completely botched. Even on its own, it carries with it a myriad of questionable design choices that I've discussed in detail. But it has potential. Pretty much everything in Zelda 2 has facilitated a love-hate relationship. To me, its overworld is both more focused and more archaic and frustrating at the same time. Its combat has potential and can be satisfying, but the relentless enemy design and focus on grinding diminished my love for it by the end of the game. But the enemies are what carry the dungeon, so I can't stay too mad at them. And yet, even if I'm getting into a good rhythm, if I lose all my lives, I have to go all the way back to Zelda's resting place and make the trek out once more, risking my lives again in the process. But this gives me a chance to level up in the meantime. But there's a possibility I could lose my lives and my experience and I'd have to start over. Oh my god, if there were ever a game to warrant the term mixed bag, it'd be Zelda 2. It's really hard to enjoy this game no matter how many times I replay it. I did three separate playthroughs for this video just to make sure that I had a solid stance on every aspect. But that didn't help. I love it, yet I hate it. As I mentioned in my Zelda retrospective intro, I want to establish who I think each game is for. For example, I think Zelda 1 is best enjoyed by people who like being let loose on a giant puzzle box with minimal guideposts. The entire world can be solved with perseverance and attentiveness. Of course, this philosophy has its holes with a few cryptic solutions that are near impossible to uncover without a walkthrough by your side, and the combat is pretty rough even as you upgrade Link. So it's not a well-rounded package by any means. However, the puzzle box philosophy is powerful enough for some people, and if you think you could look past its flaws, Zelda 1 is definitely worth a shot. On the flip side, I don't know if I can recommend Zelda 2 to any Zelda fan. It doesn't have much that the first game established aside from a more focused overworld, and even that doesn't last. Puzzles are limited to the overworld and they're insanely cryptic most of the time. Combat is a very heavy focus, thus leading to a lack of puzzle solving in dungeons, and it carries with it a ton of miscellaneous flaws and mispotential. I suppose there's something to be said about its RPG elements though, and I'd at least recommend Zelda 2 to fans of old-school action RPGs. I mean, obviously not everything in the game is geared towards them, but there's something so satisfying about racking up experience and using your spells to your advantage in combat. It's not perfect, but it's something I thoroughly enjoy and like I've mentioned before, it gives the game a great sense of progression that would otherwise be missing. But with the questionable design of enemies in this game, as well as other problems that I've discussed, I would recommend it with extreme caution anyway. But if it seems legitimately interesting to you despite the negative things I've ranted about, then chances are you'll probably get a kick out of it. I guess there's no harm in trying it out. Well, I suppose experimentation was an important part of the process for Zelda finding its footing. Completely glossing over this game would have been a huge mistake on my part. I learned a lot about the importance of involved combat in a Zelda game why the magic meter needed to be severely reworked, and why dungeons need to strike a good balance and have identities beyond structure and enemy variety. Zelda 1 had this problem too, although challenging enemies were placed in dungeons as a means of testing your abilities outside of the overworld. I didn't expand on this much, but in Zelda 2, you can run into tough enemies outside of dungeons while traveling and encountering random battles. The dungeons have lost a lot of their importance that way, and while you would still encounter new challenges in dungeons, that didn't happen all the time. What I mean to say is that Zelda 2 was all about trying new things, capturing the spirit of adventure that Shigeru Miyamoto wanted to capture in Zelda 1, but in a different way. And while the adventure part of their experiments may have been forgotten along the way, at least the game implemented a few genuinely compelling things. That doesn't mean I'll be playing it again though, I would rather not replay Zelda 2 ever again. I'll say this, Zelda 2 is the only game in the Zelda series that I flat out dislike. 
I can't tolerate it. And I've tried my best to recommend it based on its positive attributes, but I really don't think it holds up at all. I can't understand the appeal that it has to certain fans. Maybe it's nostalgia, maybe they just like the good aspects of it. And if you're one of those people, I beg you to tell me why in the comments. I need to read a positive analysis of this game. I mean, despite everything, at least I got to talk about a Zelda game on this channel again that isn't Link's crossbow training. Are you proud of me? Anyway, perhaps it's time for me to move on to the main event. A true sequel to Zelda 1's formula was only inevitable after this game, and there's a lot to talk about in that regard. The next time I talk about Zelda, I'll be discussing Link to the Past in depth, and I hope you look forward to it. For now, I've been Liam Triforce, and I'd like to thank you for watching.